Welcome on into the Superintendent Radio Network and episode 18 of the Greens with Envy podcast. I'm Matt Lowell alongside Guy Cipriano, the managing editor and the editor in chief, respectively, of Golf Course Industry Magazine. I'm in the studio today. Guy is in, I don't want to say your adopted state, but a state where you spent four very good years and you're off on really your first road trip of this COVID-19 era where you didn't have to necessarily get back to Ohio. If folks listened a few months ago to the driving through series or the cover story, you were out in California, you had to drive about 2,500 miles home to get back after a planned vacation. Now you're actually out socially distancing, talking with folks. What has it been like the last couple of days over in the Hoosier State? Well, Matt, we had to get on the road at some point, and we've been methodical with it, just trying to find the right place to go at the right time, uh, seeing superintendents and other people in the industry uh, out on golf courses is part of the job, and it's a very important part of our job. So with a lot of the industry events canceled and then some of the summer tournaments canceled, we were scheduled to go to the PGA Championship at TPC Harding Park in San Francisco in May. We were scheduled to go to go to the U.S. Women's Open at Champions Golf Club in Houston at the end of May, and then we were scheduled to go to the U.S. Open at Wingfoot in June. All those tournaments got pushed back, and most of the coverage of those events is remote. And then a lot of the other industry events, almost, okay, all of the industry events were canceled this summer, and they're going to be canceled in the fall and winter, too. It it looks that way. So this was a safe place to start our travel on the road. Indiana really hasn't been a hot spot. Uh, There's some great stories here great superintendents, great, great people. It's, it's within driving distance of our Northeast Ohio headquarters. So, yeah, we went and uh, started this trip on a Sunday and went directly to a new golf course that has everybody talking at a place that is special to me personally, uh, the foul course at Indiana University. And in full disclaimer here, I'm a Indiana University alum. I went there from 1998 to 2002 and really haven't spent much time in the state of Indiana beyond uh, covering some college football games during my sports writing career and then a few golf course industry trips here or there. So, uh, yeah, we're back on the road, and we're back at a place that is uh, familiar, and it it just makes sense to make Indiana the the first trip here. So when folks are listening to this podcast, it'll be day three of your trip. You'll almost be finished. It is not your first time seeing the foul course this year, but it was your first time on it. I think you were on it on Sunday. You also took a look, although you didn't get a chance to get on it during your road trip back from California, but this course is just, it's a beast. What is it, 8,000 yards from the back tees? Yeah, so I I think it's the brood of the Big Ten. That's what we're going to call it when we write a story. That's going to be our headline. We already have that decided. It's going to take a lot for you to convince me, Matt, to make it something different so get this everybody uh, the steve smyers design is a par 71 and the listed distance from the tips on the scorecard is 7908 yards but i was told that it could stretch out uh past 8000 the the course rating get this is 80.0 with a slope of 149 those numbers are are, are jarring and you know steve smyers was tasked by Indiana University to build a golf course that could host high-caliber championships, and he certainly did that. But he was adamant 
that uh, the number on the scorecard is a bit deceiving. The reason that it, it can stretch out to 8,000 yards is to provide setup flexibility, which is something we're hearing more and more of in the golf world. So you could have, you know, for instance, the uh, the seventh hole is a par three that goes through a shoot of trees uphill, a uh, very, very cool-looking hole. Uh, it can play 264 from the tips, but then it plays 199 from the, the white tees and 128 from the forward tees. So if you're playing a, a, a two-, three-, or four-day tournament, you could set that up in all sorts of different distances to play differently. And a lot of the holes on the golf course were designed like that. It's, it's a fascinating place. Uh, I played the old course when I was in college, which was designed in the – the 1950s by one of the co-coaches of the Indiana University golf team, who I believe was from Scotland. And, you know, the last time I had played the old course was 2002, my senior year at Indiana University. And just going around the foul course, I first toured it with Steve Smyers, and then we went out and, and played it. We met with Superintendent Anthony Robertson and General Manager Greg Bishop. And I, I don't remember the old course one bit. I mean, I've seen probably hundreds of golf courses since 2002, and I did, I did not remember one thing about the old golf course uh, when we went around the foul course twice on, on Sunday. And it is, it's fascinating in so many ways, Matt. It's got 31 acres of zoysia grass fairways. Uh, Bloomington, Indiana has kind of become a zoysia grass hotspot. Uh, zoysia grass is coming further and further north, and Bloomington Country Club there in town also has zoysia grass. And I believe Cascades, the municipal golf course, also has zoysia grass fairways. And Anthony Robertson was the superintendent at Bloomington Country Club. I decided to take the job at Indiana University when the previous superintendent retired, and he, he spent uh, some time maintaining the old golf course and getting ready for this huge project. And this is this is a huge project. Uh, you know, the, the publicly released price tag is $12 million for the golf course and the clubhouse. Uh, lots of donors involved, including a gentleman named Ned Fowl, who the, uh, the golf course is named after. He's a very... Uh, successful business person in the state of Indiana. Uh, his his wife, Sue Fowl, is also named after. Uh, every hole is named in honor of the donors that contributed to the project. And it, it took a long time to get the funds uh, together to do this. It was done through the athletic department. Uh, the, the former athletic director, Fred Glass, who just retired, is a huge was a huge advocate of, of, of golf and improving Indiana's golf facilities and uh, really a unique um, process to, to get this to the finish line. It, it, like any new golf course, and this is a new golf course, even though it was built on the site of the old golf course, the old golf course is completely gone. So it, it's a new golf course. It's on the same land, but just completely different routing and, and, and concept and uh, just ways of using the spectacular southern Indiana land. It, it, it's a unique place. It's a great test of golf. Uh, we played it at like 64. 400 yards on a wet Sunday, and you felt like you're using every club in your bag. Uh, I would say it's a it's a very fair golf course too, and it's you know everybody wants every golf course to be for everybody. But when uh, Steve Smyers was given his uh, objectives to design this golf course, and it's right there on the golf course's website, their, their mission. Well, the, the four parts of their mission: that attract high caliber events, thus the the um, vast yardage and the different ways it can be set up provide for the future of the game of golf. Well, when we were there on Sunday, there was a golf week junior um, tournament going on and there were these awesome junior players from the Midwest playing the golf courses. We were touring it before we went out and played. You just, you just go around and 
and watch the junior game these days, and you're just in awe. Just the sound of the ball is just so, so pure, and there's so many talented uh, junior golfers. So uh, another part of the mission is require golfers to execute a variety of shots. That's certainly the case at the foul course. Preserve and, and enhance the environment. Well, there you go, Zoysiergrass Fairways. Anthony Robertson, who's one of the, uh, the, the greatest maintainers and growers of Zoysiergrass in, in North America, told me that uh, their chemical and fertilizer budget by using Zoysiergrass Fairways will be a fifth less than what it would have been had they used Bentgrass Fairways. So that's certainly uh, uh, being uh, environmentally conscious there. And then uh, another part of the ambition is to, to be economically sustainable. So they brought in a general manager who works for the athletic department, Greg Bishop, who is a golf industry veteran. He's been involved in numerous golf projects throughout the state of Indiana. And instead of having some associate athletic director who really doesn't know much about operating the golf course, overseeing the golf course, they have a, uh, they have Greg as the general manager. It's an athletic department uh, position. He, he's the one that's uh, overseeing the thing. His title is senior assistant athletic director and director of golf operations. But it's great for the foul course that they have somebody with a golf background in that position to be the, the liaison between the uh, – the athletic department and the university and the people that come and play the golf course every day. So it's, it's a fascinating project. It, uh, just going around it, you're like, man, they could play almost any golf tournament in the world for any caliber of player on this golf course. It's, it's that type of property, that Having someone in the athletics department who understands how to run a golf course and is a champion for that golf course is important, and we will get to that a little later in the podcast, talking about the state of college golf. Uh, it was the subject of our forthcoming August cover story, uh, courses back in session. Before we get to that, though, you tweeted on Sunday when you were out on the course that Steve Smyers considers the Fow course, the rolling southern Indiana site, the best land he's received for a new design. What else did he say, and what did maybe Anthony uh, say, and what did Greg say? about the site, about the land, about the new course? I mean, it's special. I mean, you know, these are people that have had opportunities to do other things in golf the last few years, but they stuck with this project despite some of the the difficulties and and some of the challenges of working with a a university in in the the 2000s. It's not easy doing anything at a university, let alone building a – a golf course, which let's face it, there are people in the college settings that don't don't believe in golf and don't don't want a golf course on on the land near near campus. But uh, you know, I think that the fact that they've all stuck stuck with it is, is a sign of how how special it is. Um, Steve Smyers considers himself the king of bad sites. I think almost any golf course architect would say that about his or her career. Besides, you know, the select few, besides your Bill Coors and Ben Crenshaws and Tom Dokes and Gil Hanses. It seems like, and Jack Nicholas's. It seems like the same. What four to six architects get all the great sites, doesn't it? Doesn't it, Matt? I mean, uh, yeah. Steve was just uh, an incredible opportunity for him. He designed it. He designed a now defunct golf course in Indiana called Wilf Run that was a top 100 type golf course, and just uh, a few years ago, it, it, it fell apart because uh, the, the person who owned the land thought that. It should be sold for housing. It hasn't been sold for housing yet, so there's a chance that maybe Wolf Run will come back in Zionsville, which is outside uh, Indianapolis, which would be huge for the Indiana golf scene. And, and yeah, the, the three of them 
developed quite a bond going through this project. And and for Anthony, who grew up in Bloomington and then moved away to Tennessee, I mean, how, how special is that to, to be a part of a new golf course in the community where you spent your childhood? I mean, how many, how many people get to do that in their career? And then Greg um, was involved in um, Otter Creek, which we'll talk about later, uh, early in his career and get a chance, you know, to, to, to come to Bloomington and play a big part in this golf course. And, uh, you know, you just go around it and you're like, there aren't many tests of golf like this. I mean, it, it's got, it's got, it's tree lined. It's got the Zoysia grass fairways. It's going to have amazing fescue and native areas when it matures. Uh, the green complexes are interesting. The bunkers are really meant to play like hazards. And I think there are 147 of them, but they're not going to be like, heavily maintained white sand bunkers. In fact, they have that brown river sand, which I, I think is an incredibly cool look. And, and there, there's really only one force carry on the golf course, though, and that's on the 18th hole. And that's something, you know, when I was touring it with Steve Smyers, we get to the 18th hole, we stand on the back tee, and from the back tee on the 18th hole, Matt, it plays 518 yards into a prevailing wind. And it's a par four. And as Steve goes... Uh, he goes, in my, you know, in my philosophy is that real championships sh- should be uh, one on the 18th hole. You shouldn't need a wedge into the last hole. And the 18th hole in the Steve's Warriors should be a thorough examination of one's abilities. And that 18th hole is certainly like that. And it's got a sort of punch bowl-like green. And it's got, like, this bowl amphitheater setting right behind the green. And you just go around it, and you're like, man, they could set up bleachers here and it, it really could be that that type of golf course i mean it's not that far-fetched now for a, a college golf course to host a big tournament just just last summer Notre, the warren course at notre dame hosted the, the u.s senior open uh, that's in the northern part of indiana so this is a course once it matures and once they get some college events on there i, I think it's going to be something that uh governing bodies are going to take a look at for even bigger events than college tournaments you aren't an incredibly sentimental person. You are a proud IU alum. You've got your Hoosiers mug that you drink out of most days. But you have to love being back in Bloomington on your college campus. It's changed tremendously, I'm sure, in the last 18 years. But your emotions, your reaction to being back there, even just for a day, and to be out there for a round with a couple of key folks on the course, what what did you... What did you experience personally there? You've talked about what everybody else thought. Well, here's what I told Steve, Anthony, and Greg, is that somebody like myself graduated from Indiana University in 2002, and then I started my uh, career in central Pennsylvania, and really the only times I got back to the university were covering Penn State football games. So I'm not really – I've never – this is the closest I've lived to Bloomington, which, uh, you know, Cleveland's about five hours to Bloomington. I said, going around this golf course makes me proud to be an Indiana University alum. And it's also going to help the university uh, get alums to re-engage with the golf course. I mean, think about it like this. You're, you're in your 30s or 40s and 50s and want to go back to Bloomington and meet up with your college friends, but you can't get a hotel room on football weekends or that just doesn't work out in your schedule. You know, you can't get back for a weeknight basketball game or the, the Little 500 or a concert or something. Well, this is a place where you could get four Indiana University alums who live in uh, Indianapolis or, or Cincinnati or Chicago or even Cleveland come down for a weekend and, and 
play the foul course and go to some of the establishments they went to in college. And, and that creates uh, goodwill. And maybe those people want to donate some money to the, or re-engage with the university. So you've you got to look at, at this more than just a place where people play competitive golf or students play recreational golf. This is a, this is a, a great golf course in a college setting offers opportunities for people to engage or even in my case re-engage with their alma mater and you know over time if, if you reach the right people and get the right people to that to that golf facility that that can pay for itself in in donations and other things that it can do for the university so it's huge if it's done right and i i, I kept on telling steve and anthony and greg that this makes me so damn proud to be an Indiana University alum. Of course, I work in the golf industry. Golf courses are a big part of my life, but I really, until the building of this golf course, had no reason to um, engage or re-engage with the university. And another cool thing is that they're building a hospital um, on some land adjacent to the golf course, and you walk up to, on the 11th fairway, and, and you can see this huge hospital being built. And uh, it's not done yet, but they're going to put uh, the – the IU letters, giant creaming, um, crimson IU letters on the side of the building. You're going to be able to see that when you get to the 11th tee box. And that's just going to, I think if you're uh, affiliated with Indiana University, that's going to be so cool. And, you know, most of the golf courses is wooded and in that rolling land, but it, it's cool to see this new hospital go up because I, I think it's big to have a campus building near the golf course because a, a great golf course gives you a sense of place. And there's definitely some serenity in, in the wooded settings on that golf course, but seeing a building that's affiliated with the university gives you the sense of place that you're on a major college campus. Sports are the front porch to any college or university, and that does not just football and basketball. The second leg of your Hoosier trip was a course familiar probably to GCI readers. It was actually uh, – featured a little bit recently in a story by one of our writers, Judd Spicer, and that is Otter Creek Golf Course. Was this your first time at Otter Creek? Yes, it was. Wow. And Indiana has some damn good public golf courses, Matt. This is one of the great, um, not only great public golf states in the Midwest, but one of the great public golf states in the United, United States. If, if you think about it, there are 21 peat dye designs in the state of Indiana. Many of them are open to the public. Uh, probably the most renowned one or the one that people would most like to play would be the one at, at French Lake Resort. And French Lake Resort also has a Donald Ross golf mm-hmm. course open to the public. And, you know, speaking of Judd Spicer, he wrote a story for us last year about how French Lake Resort in southern Indiana is the only um, place in the United States that has a Donald Ross and a Pete Dye design golf course. So those are open to the public. And then the Warren course at Notre Dame is open to the public. And that's a Bill Core and Ben Crenshaw d- design. Uh, like I just mentioned before, there's some fabulous peak die designs that are open to the public. Uh, I was supposed to play Brickyard Crossing last night and got rained out. Uh, some of the holes on that course go inside the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, and there's an LPGA event played there. I mean, how cool is that? Uh, the Fort in Indianapolis is another great public golf course. And, you know, Otter Creek falls into that category, too. So Otter Creek was a gift from the Cummings, Inc., which is a huge company. In the, the 1960s, they gave the city of Columbus, Indiana, the land, 
And uh, what did they do with that land? Uh, they built a Robert Trent Jones Sr. designed golf course uh, on that land. It opened in 1964. Uh, the, the, tournament, or the, the course has hosted a lot of big amateur events, including the 1991 USGA uh, Amateur Public Links Championship. Uh, it's hosted the Indiana State Amateur 26 times. Hmm. That, that's pretty amazing. And then Reese Jones, uh, of course, Robert Trent, one of Robert Trent Jones' senior sons, built a third nine there in the 2000s. So it's an, it's an original Robert Trent Jones senior 18-hole course there in central Indiana, and it's a great property. Two creeks go through the property. Of course, one's called Otter Creek. Uh, the other one's called Clifty Creek. Uh, go figure, Clifty Creek is actually a bigger creek than Otter Creek, but the golf course is named after Otter Creek, and Brent Downs is the superintendent there. I had an opportunity to meet him at the Sagenna Business Institute in 2018, and we've kept in touch, and he is somebody that is uh, very enthusiastic about the golf industry, and he's in his third season as the head superintendent at Otter Creek, and he's made uh, some tremendous improvements to that golf course. Uh, he's a very uh, passionate person. He's also a budding writer, and we talked writing for an hour in his office yesterday and looked for his name to appear in the, the golf course industry pages when we get to our 2020 Turf Heads Takeover uh, edition. He's already submitted a, a two article concepts, and they're both fabulous, and they both touch on things that uh, our readers are sometimes struggling with and things that they were struggling with even before this COVID-19 uh, situation. So, yeah, Otter Creek is a, a, a great golf course. Uh, it gets a lot of play, and it still has a lot of those Robert Trent Jones senior elements. And, yeah, it's just a great public golf state. And then you throw in the, the, the foul course at Indiana University and Rock Hollows, one that got it, that's got a nice uh, history to it. And I'm sure I'm mentioning a bunch of them. There are a lot of uh, small-town nine-holers uh, throughout the, the state of Indiana. It's, uh, Chariot Run in southern Indiana, where our friend David – Bean Blossom just uh, has a terrifically maintained golf course not that far from Louisville. So it's, it, uh, Fuzzy Zeller has been involved in projects throughout the state. He's an Indiana native, and he uh, helped a little with the foul course at Indiana University. So it's one of those states where if, if you were going to take a trip with your friends and want to play some great golf and, and not break the bank, uh, Indiana would be a place that you would consider. It's almost like the, um, the, the less publicized Wisconsin of the Midwest in terms of public golf. There are a lot of great courses, and it's it's close for us. It's close for a lot of people, like you said. You come from Chicago, you come from Cincinnati, maybe even Detroit, Cleveland, Louisville, uh, or Louisville, uh, as you're as you say when you're actually from there. It it's really centrally located for the Midwest. It's a great state. You're going to be out there. Oh, Michigan. Sorry to interrupt, Matt. I, I I'd be remiss if I didn't say Michigan has great public golf too in the Midwest. Oh, absolutely. You're going to be out there one more day. I know the rain kind of curtailed some of your other plans. What else is on your schedule for the last day? So we're going to go by to the Sagamore Club in Noblesville, which is in the uh, just booming north suburbs of Indianapolis, to see our friend Dan Grogan, who um, is somebody that we speak with frequently, and he's somebody who's not afraid to share information on Twitter, and he shared a lot of things that's helped his colleagues out. So, Excited to see Dan. Uh, you know, it's it's just cool to go out again with superintendents and and not only see the golf course, but just talk about the industry. And and Matt, we've done a good job of doing that over the phone here the last few months. And you can certainly um, have some great conversations 
whether it's through um, a, a phone interview or, or a teleconference or a webinar, but it's, it's just not the same as getting out and seeing people. And we're fortunate because in our line of work, uh, we have really the ultimate safe haven, the, the, the golf course. We're not in conference rooms. We're not in offices for the most part when we go on the road. We're outside either or driving around or walking with somebody else, and it just, it just feels safe. And you, you can talk to somebody on the phone, but it's just not the same back and forth. And also, it's one thing for a superintendent to tell you about the challenges they're experiencing. It's another thing to go out and see how crowded the golf courses are and how they're trying to get work done around play and how there's uh, only seven people trying to maintain 200 acres or whatever some, some of the staff reductions are right now or, or some of the weather challenges that are there in, in the summer when it's hot and humid in the transition zone like southern Indiana. So uh, for us, this is only going to strengthen us to, to get these opportunities. And, you know, it's not going to be – uh, where we're going away every two weeks again. This is this is going to be a slow process getting back on the road, but it, it, it's great to to be out there and see our, our readers and just have conversations with them that, that are going to strengthen uh, not only uh, the articles that we write, but some of the ideas that we get. And, you know, just from talking to Brent Downs for a long time yesterday. I mean, I have idea after idea uh, listed in, in my notebook right now, and. Yeah, I could have talked to him on the phone, but I'm, I'm not sure that I would have quite gotten the information. It's one thing, and, and you know, we were together for close to three hours. I mean, who's going to have a three-hour phone conversation with somebody, too? Right. So you learn a lot when you're with another person, and that's one of the big uh, questions here, Matt, as we move into the, the fall and winter is what's going to happen to the face-to-face interaction in the golf industry because it's it's a very hands-on business, right? You're outside. You're, you're touching and feeling the turf and you're you're seeing how it how it it grows and you're and and the challenges that it faces and you're you're working with other people in these outside environments that change every day you need help with it and uh, you know to me that's the biggest question entering the the fall and winter here in the golf industry is what's going to happen to the interaction that golf course superintendents and assistant superintendents and researchers and architects and contractors have with their peer Peers, and the longer we go without, you know, regular face-to-face interaction, uh, how is that going to affect the industry? I mean, maybe maybe there's no effect. Maybe there's a huge effect. We don't we don't know yet. When people aren't in these um, conference rooms together at these events or golf outings, we don't know what the long-term effects of that are going to be. What, what are your thought, thoughts on that, Matt? Obviously, everyone's got to be safe right now. But if we go, you know, a year, year and a half without seeing people face-to-face in the golf industry what, what do you think do you think some things could be lost long term well I think when I go out for my walks or my runs I always make eye contact with people and I always try to wave and say hi and the number of people who have become asocial or antisocial or just don't want to make eye contact with you as if you can transmit COVID-19 by sight uh, is, is astounding now I don't think that will happen to the same extent in golf. Golf is a much more social activity than just going for a walk or going for a run. But I think people can get a little more in their own islands. They can get a little more in their own heads. Um, I don't know if that'll change long term, but it is one thing that I've noticed in my hundreds of miles on roads and sidewalks and, and trails the last few months. 
and Matt, we talked about my experiences with Indiana University and the golf course there. What your university, Ohio University, has a golf course. Did you have a chance to to see it when you were in college? Did you? Did you? You're a big runner. Did you have a chance to run around it? What do you know about the, the golf scene at your alma mater? We have a little nine hole right on the Hocking River. Beautiful, beautiful setting. But because I only ran one year of cross country, and because the golf course was actually under construction during that one season. Uh, there was a renovation going on. I never had the opportunity to run on the course. I ran next to it on the bike path often, but never on it, and never had a home race on it. Uh, actually never played it when I was in college. I know about the history of Ohio golf. We had a wonderful, wonderful coach for many years named Kermit Blosser. Great name, better guy, who in the 30s played football at Ohio University and the school was dominant. They outscored their opponents in his three years, something like 700 to 59. His last year, he decided on a whim to take up wrestling. He won a national championship as a college wrestler, and then he hung around. He came back to coach various sports, and he wound up coaching golf for decades. And I think he won something like 18 MAC championships, 18 Mid-American Conference championships in 32 years, to the point where there are multiple awards and trophies named after him. I think the MAC championship trophy is, is named the Blosser Trophy, and I think there's a college golf uh, coach award named the Blosser Award. So, big deal. I didn't meet him until he was in his 90s, and he died in 2006, I think it 95. Just so many stories, and, and I'm glad to have gotten to have met him, but never did get to play that course. Wow, that's a, that's a great story. And uh, Does Ohio University still have a, a golf team, Matt? They do. They do, uh, unless they've cut it very recently and I missed it, uh, which is entirely no, they, possible. They, I look at the list of cut uh, NCAA programs almost every day, and I haven't seen that one on there. No. Now, Akron, right down the road from us, uh, the University of Akron cut its men's and women's mm-hmm. golf teams, and then Dartmouth cut its golf programs. And not only did Dartmouth cut its golf programs, Dartmouth is, is closing its 121-year-old in-over country club golf course. And this seems like a perfect transition to our last topic in this 18th episode of Greens with Envy. It is also, as I mentioned at the top of the show, the focus of our forthcoming August cover story course is back in session. Uh, the state of college golf. So you and I talked with, I don't know, probably, I think it was eight, maybe nine college golf course superintendents, directors over the last month for a story kind of diving into what is going on with college golf, both in terms of courses being opened and closed. How does not having a team uh, potentially affect the course if it does at all. Uh, and it really was spurred on by seeing Yale still not reopen its course. It hasn't been opened, I think, since November, and it probably won't open at all this year. And then Dartmouth closing its course for good, and we'll see if that lasts. There are some notable alums and donors who are not happy about this, so we'll see if they can get that reversed. But those were kind of the two spurs and I don't want to spoil too much in the story because it's a great story. It's the cover in six pages of the August issue, which will be, if you subscribe, it should be in your mailbox here in the next couple of weeks, and it'll be online before then. 
what did you pick up in your conversations, in your reporting, and in your writing guy that really stuck with you about where college golf is in the fall, late summer, early fall of 2020? Well, we just talked about what a good golf course at a university can do, like the, mm-hmm. the foul course at Indiana University. And I, I really don't want to give too much of the story away, but I'll, I'll put it this way. If you think the situation at your golf course is messed up, wait till you read this story and hear what's going on at colleges and universities. And I almost think the golf courses, Matt, are the microcosm of what's going on with other things at colleges colleges and universities right now and and through no fault of their own these golf courses that could be successful if they were just operated as standalone facilities a lot of them would be profitable because they're in towns that don't have a lot of golf supply are really being pinched for reasons that are aren't completely understandable but uh, they're part of a bigger operation and and you, you know in our world the golf course is the center of the universe but to somebody running a college you know some of these have billion dollar endowments the golf course is only a small part of what goes on and you know some of these are affiliated with athletic departments and and they play by the same rules as everybody else at the college and university well but by playing by the same rules as everybody else these courses which are great facilities with dedicated superintendents and assistant superintendents and sometimes general managers are really in a, a tough position so i'll repeat myself if you think your course has had a messed up year. Wait till you read this story. And that's something that we didn't go into great detail in, in what is about a 3,000-word story, is just that we got into the granular details. We talked with a lot of really smart, really connected and, and, and deep in it folks. But the one thing that you and I talked about that didn't really make it in there too much is these courses, if they were run as independent small businesses, and when I say independent, I mean independent of the athletics department, not tied to the athletics department's budget. If there's no college football, the courses won't be adversely affected. These courses, a lot of them, if they aren't run as independent businesses, as independent small businesses, they're going to struggle. And if they are, and there are a few that are highlighted in there, Georgia Southern University isn't an independent business per se, but it's not tied to the athletics department. Um, and Patrick Reinhardt there had a lot of great things to say for the story. If, if they're run as independent small businesses, they can probably weather this a little better just because they, they don't have this enormous budget tied to them. They aren't reliant on money coming in from other areas. And it just it doesn't make sense to me after talking with some superintendents at college golf courses why any golf course on a, on a campus would be tied to the athletics department. It just, it makes no sense to me, Guy. Yeah, just because they have the, the NCAA golf team play there really is mm-hmm. the only reason it wouldn't tie to the athletic department. But I'll give you a great example. Campbell University is one of the courses that we mentioned in the, in the story, and we spoke with yeah. Damon Dean, the superintendent there. Uh, Keith Hills Golf Club is the name of it, the golf course at Campbell University. Right. It's tied in with the business school and professional golf management program so it's actually operated by people that understand financials well it never closed down in campbell universities in north carolina about uh 50 minutes from raleigh and when i spoke with damon i think it was on july 17th he said that the uh keith hills had already um matched its 2019 
July revenue numbers, and that was only 17 days into this July. So that's a golf course that is tied in with a university that is absolutely flourishing, and a lot of these others would be flourishing too if they were just allowed to operate as a public golf course in their communities. Again, don't want to dive too much into that story. There's going to be a lot of great stuff in there. It'll be online, I think, this week or next week, Guy? Uh, next Monday, our digital edition yep. goes out. So August, August 10th. 10th. And then uh, you'll get your print magazine in the uh, mail shortly thereafter. Yep. Great cover story. Something that you came up with while the issue was was uh, still being Put together, we, we switched stuff around, and, and it was a great late change. I had a lot of fun writing it. Should have a lot more fun with some of the issues coming up as well, including our December Turf Heads Takeover, the fifth annual, coming up. I know you mentioned this a couple of minutes ago. If you are listening to this podcast, and this has been a tough year for almost everybody, certainly in, in this industry, if you want to write about your struggles or what you've learned at all this year or any other topic doesn't even have to be 2020 related. Let us know. It could be as short as seven or 800 words. It could be as long as 2000 words. We usually have room for about a dozen to 15 pieces from turf heads all across the industry. The fifth annual turf heads takeover issue is the December issue. The deadline for submissions is Friday, November 6th. And if you're up in the air, you don't want to potentially go through the whole process of writing. You just want to kind of talk through things. Guy and I are here. We're happy to talk you through the writing process. The editing process will make it as relatively painless as possible. I can't believe we've had five of these now. It's exciting, and uh, I would say that anyone that's contributed an article to it over the course of the first four years we've done it is glad that they did. And, heck, one of our original Turf Heads contributors, Matthew Wharton, parlayed his success uh, with writing articles for that and his successes as a blog into becoming the backstage columnist for the golf course industry. So anything's possible when you get an article out there, and we highly encourage people to do it. I, I don't. Not only will you find it incredibly fulfilling, I think in a year like this you would also find it therapeutic to put some of the uh, things that you went through and some of the challenges that you overcame into writing and let others know, know about the great work that you and your team have done. The 5th Annual Turf Heads Takeover issue, again, that's our December issue coming up here in a few months. The deadline for submissions, Friday, November 6th, just a few weeks before Thanksgiving. Guy, safe travels in the Hoosier State. I will see you again, I don't know, next week after you you come home and and self-quarantine for a few days. Yeah, I'll have to work from home when I, I get home for a few days and then back in the office and... It, like I said, it was great. It's been great to get back out on the road and and see superintendents and speak to them face to face. And uh, trips like this are only going to make golf course industry stronger. Looking forward to reading more from your road trip. For Guy Cipriano, the editor in chief of Golf Course Industry Magazine, I'm Matt Lowell, managing editor of GCI. Thank you so much, as always, for listening to Greens with Envy on the Superintendent radio network we'll be back next week with a new episode of off the course our monthly podcast talking with turf heads about literally anything other than their job the week after that beyond the page diving a little deeper into the august issue the cover story again focusing on the state of college golf courses and in three weeks guy will be back with i believe episode 50 of tartan talks the monthly conversation with members of the asgca